This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with ACE CEO Brian Jennings next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The nation's ethanol industry has endured a number of challenges even before the COVID-19 pandemic gripped the nation and tempered global fuel demand. The American Coalition for Ethanol represents primarily independent and farmer-owned ethanol facilities nationwide. CEO Brian Jennings says farmers who own big stakes and ethanol plants are struggling with low prices for corn and their value-added fuel. 2018 and 2019 were particularly difficult for finding profit margins due to the small refinery exemptions that, that really undermine the domestic marketplace and the trade wars that undermined our ability to sell ethanol and distillers grains and other co-products around the world. And so we were hopeful, I guess optimistic, going into 2020 that maybe some things would turn around. We had some initial indications that maybe, just maybe, EPA was going to take a, a better approach to the RFS. And then, you know, of course, we get hit with this oil price war between the, the Saudis and the the Russians, which brought the price of all fuel down, and in a normal marketplace, well, you think that's great. Uh, fuel prices are lower, demand will increase, and then, of course, we get sort of sucker punched by the demand destruction that took place as a result of the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. And so we were back on our heels going into the year, and we got knocked flat on the mat during the, the spring of 2020, and we've, we've picked ourselves up. We've dusted ourselves off the, the fuel market domestically, rebounded fairly quickly from the vertical drop that it experienced, but we haven't recovered. And it could be well over a year before the fuel marketplace recovers to pre-pandemic levels. A article published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Industrial Organization suggesting you'd lost $8 billion this year. Can you recover from that? There have been a few studies out there. The Renewable Fuels Association has done some in, internal analysis where I think the range that they came up with is on the low side, somewhere around $3 billion worth of damage to the ethanol industry, and on the high end of the range, approaching $10 billion. And as you noted, a couple of other universities came out very recently and suggested that the damage to the ethanol industry is $8 billion no, we don't we don't recover from that or recoup that certainly not over the short term. It's going to be a very long and potentially painful recovery. A big part of that has to come through the domestic marketplace. So we need to see demand pick up for blending ethanol and part of that of course has to do with the RFS, but part of it just has to do with getting the economy going again and people 
getting out there and driving. And we don't know yet the long-term impacts of people working from home during the pandemic, meaning will, will we will we see that as a long-term trend and how will that impact gasoline and ethanol demand going forward? And of course, this is a global pandemic. And so we saw demand for transportation fuels fall all around the world. And so those places where we would think, okay, well, we'll just make up for a lost domestic marketplace by exporting more product. Well, that that doesn't work out very well when those economies are experiencing downturns as well. And, and we have some of these trade wars still in place that really limit our ability to sell product. And so that begs the question, if we're not going to recover three or eight billion dollars from the marketplace, what happens? And that's why we've been urging Congress and the administration to include biofuel producers in any stimulus uh, that they may take up. You know, we saw three stimulus packages work their way through Congress and get signed into law by the president over the course of the spring and summer. Unfortunately, those three packages all left ethanol uh, and renewable fuels on the cutting room floor, despite the staggering losses that we've experienced. So um, there's some hope yet that a fourth stimulus may be taken up, but I frankly view it as a long shot. There are provisions in the fourth stimulus that have been circulating through Congress that would provide some direct relief for biofuel producers, but again, it it's unfortunately looking like Congress is not going to get their act together and, and come together behind a, a package. It's a speculative question, but it's one I think that's fair. What happens if Washington doesn't come through with assistance for the ethanol industry? Well, if Washington does not come through with assistance and we see the market continue to sort of drag along and, and not fully recover for months or years, I think we see some of the more highly leveraged ethanol facilities, maybe some that are older, don't have all of the technology upgrades that maybe aren't quite as efficient as the, the newer plants. I see We may see some of those shut down for good. We may see some of those idled back until the, the market gets better. We may see some consolidation in the industry where some companies decide it's just time to get out and sell to a, a larger company. And so I think we could see some changes in the structure of this industry if no uh, relief is provided. It is speculative, so we'll we'll just have to wait and see how that, how that shakes out. Is there a percentage that you would anticipate could be lost of production? There's not a percentage, I guess, that I'm willing to anticipate would be lost to production. But I would say we are an industry that's capable of producing about 17 billion gallons of ethanol a year in the United States. And, you know, at the worst moment back in March and April, we dropped to about half of that. We were producing about 8 billion, 8.5 billion gallons. We've recovered to a point where on an annualized basis, we're producing somewhere between 13 and 13 and a half billion gallons. But, you know, we're still a couple billion gallons off of our normal production and use of ethanol is going to be a, a billion and a half or two billion gallons lower than what it normally would be in 2020. And so that's a lot of plants and that's a lot of jobs and that's uh, hundreds of millions of bushels of corn that won't have a marketplace. And so the negative ripple effects are real. And that's why you see some of these analyses come out that determine that the losses are in the, the billions of dollars. Leading up to 2020, how had the EPA's decisions on SREs affected your industry? 
How did it affect the volume of corn that was being purchased from farmers? Well, EPA's mishandling of the small refinery exemption provision of the renewable fuel standard over the last three, three and a half years has had a tremendously negative impact on corn farmers and, and ethanol producers. We know that the refinery waivers that have been granted in the past, 86 of them effectively eroding 4 billion gallons of blending from what the statute, from what the renewable fuel standard statute calls for, the 4 billion gallons wiped away from blending speaks for itself, and that's hundreds of millions of bushels of of corn that uh, should have been ground into ethanol that had to find another home. And so the sort of price-depressing impact that that's had on corn farmers is significant. It has also diminished the ethanol industry's ability to achieve higher blending rates in the domestic marketplace. And that's really one of the primary purposes of the renewable fuel standard, to encourage the increased use of ethanol and other renewable fuels year year by year. So the damage has been significant. Brian, we have witnessed now the first presidential debate. Climate change was in the discussion. Uh, do you expect that renewable fuels may play a role in this race for the White House? And what would you want to hear from either candidate? Well, we've already seen that renewable fuels, specifically the renewable fuel standard, has been playing a role in the presidential election, particularly in the state of Iowa as it relates to whether you know Iowa goes to uh, re-elect President Trump or swings to support Vice President Biden on November 3rd. And obviously, we've seen that this issue of ethanol in the RFS um, come to a head in the contested Senate race in Iowa between Joni Ernst and Greenfield. What I would like to see out of the candidates on this topic are from the president, we need fewer promises and fewer tweets that promise to do things and and more concrete action. You know, a step in the right direction was taken recently when he directed EPA to reject some, not all, but some of these really outrageous gap year waiver requests by finers to escape their blending obligations under the RFS going back to like 2011. That's a good start, but we need more concrete action from this administration and this president. There is so much left to be done from some of the promises that have been made. We need the Tenth Circuit Court decision that ACE was a part of winning on these small refinery exemptions to be applied nationwide going forward by his EPA We need EPA to reject the remaining gap year waivers. We need the 2019 small refinery waivers to be dealt with. We need the 2017 lawsuit that we won to be dealt with. So we just need more concrete action, I think, from the president and from the vice president. I think, you know, what Monty Shaw said recently about the vice president needing to meet Iowans face-to-face and explain much more clearly and in person, sort of his vision, his plans for ethanol if he were elected. You know, he's put out some very strong statements in support of the RFS, and that's a good step. But we need to see, I think, more concrete information from the vice president and speaking directly with, you know, whether it's Iowans or rural Americans about what he would do 
uh, with the RFS and ethanol if he were president. The House did pass clean energy legislation, and one piece of it is Ag Chairman Peterson's RFS Integrity Act. If that becomes law, how does it help? Well, Chairman Peterson has been a strong advocate for us, and so we're grateful for his leadership. The Peterson legislation would do is not necessarily end the small refinery exemption program like like our lawsuit did, but it would shine significantly more light uh, onto the process of how EPA considers these small refinery exemptions and grants them. There's been so much secrecy about who is applying for these waivers, what justification they're using to get the waivers from EPA. Um, and so his legislation would shine more light on that, more transparency. Uh, and it would also require these refiners to seek these waivers in a more timely fashion. Illinois Representative Sherry Bustos offered the Next Generation Fuels Act of 2020. What's in that bill, and how does it help to provide you a future? Well, there's a lot to like in the Next Generation Fuels Act that Representative Bustos introduced recently, and so we appreciate her leadership on this these issues. It would really open the marketplace um, for ethanol in the future. It contains things like restoring credits for flexible fuel vehicles, so, <clears throat> excuse me, more automakers or cranking out those vehicles that can use higher blends. It would require some compatibility on the part of future retail infrastructure to be able to use blends up to E30, so really paving the way to higher blends. It would make sure that we don't have to keep going back and forth to EPA when it comes to the volatility emission restrictions on higher blends of ethanol. The the more ethanol you use in gasoline, the fewer the evaporative emissions are, and this legislation would recognize that and give sort of reed vapor pressure parity to all blends. It would create a, a high-octane market uh, place where fuels that contain octane are more sought out in the future, and we all know that ethanol plays an important role in boosting the octane of fuel and it would also call for you know a low carbon content and that's probably the the one concern we have with the bill it wouldn't allow facilities to sort of certify their carbon intensity on an individual basis and we need to see that happen in order for this bill to really have a profound impact but it's a good start Brian what do the auto manufacturers tell you that they're looking for as they prepare for the next generations of vehicles in the country? Well, the automakers want certainty, and that comes from whether it's the EPA and the fuel economy standards or states that are trying to impose different things that impact the auto marketplace. Automakers haven't really been able to to have that certainty from EPA when it comes to you know fuel economy or the greenhouse gas standards or FFV incentives, and so that's why we we see the number of those FFVs diminish. Automakers do tell us they want octane, and we're encouraged by that. Um, You know, automakers would rather not pick whether that octane come from ethanol or a petroleum source, but automakers do acknowledge the fact that, that Ethanol from octane is certainly much better from a tailpipe emission standpoint and from a 
excuse me, a life cycle greenhouse gas emission standpoint. So they're an important stakeholder in all of this, and we continue to, to engage with the automakers on trying to make sure that the, the future market will enable us to increase the use of ethanol and, and also help them with some of the, you know, the technologies they're rolling off the assembly lines, the turbocharged engines, the higher compression engines that really do need a higher octane fuel. So then there's this. California Governor Newsom decided no gas-powered vehicles are going to be sold in his state past a particular date. Uh, I question if he has that authority, and if he does, what happens if a state like California enacts such a measure? Yeah, the the governor of California has issued an executive order calling for so-called zero-emission vehicles only to be sold by the year 2035. I think you're right. There are some questions about whether the governor possesses the legal authority to go down this road. It's also, I think, really important to point out that there's really no such thing as a zero-emission vehicle. What he's getting at, as you noted, are electric vehicles. And I don't have a fight to pick with electric vehicles. In fact, I'm one of, I think, very few people in the ethanol industry that think we ought to figure out ways to politically align ourselves with those that want to see more electric vehicles because ethanol is a low-carbon fuel. Electricity from renewable sources is low-carbon. We might think about partnering and working together to try and accomplish a similar goal. But today, a lot of these electric vehicles, when they're plugged in overnight, it's burning coal that powers those batteries and those, those vehicles. And that's hardly emission-free. That's that's not zero emission. And so what we have encouraged California to do instead of some kind of lofty aspirational thing like this about electric vehicles is to work now on ways to improve the fuel that's used in internal combustion engines. Don't put the target on the back of internal combustion engines, but work with the ethanol industry and automakers and others to make sure that those internal combustion engines have more environmentally friendly fuel to use. And that could mean increasing the ethanol blend rate, for example, in the state of California. Right now, California prohibits E15. They don't really have a good reason why they prohibit it. And they're in the middle of studying this issue now. And I think in a year or two, they will allow it. But, you know, the more ethanol that we can use in a place like California in internal combustion engines, the better we're going to do for the environment. So, that's the approach we would encourage California to take. Ron, we could spend a lot of time talking about this next issue, but I'll bring it to you together. Uh, perhaps you can summarize for us. How do you see the global landscape for U.S. ethanol? What trade opportunities do you see, and what challenges like Brazil's TRQ are you facing in that global landscape? Well, I would say before some of the trouble that we ran into with small refinery exemptions and EPA's handling of those, exports of ethanol were really saving our bacon in terms of um, profitability at ethanol plants, returning you know profits to shareholders. Canada has always been one of the top customers of U.S. ethanol. You mentioned Brazil, and prior to their 2017 imposition of this tariff rate quota, Brazil was the top destination for uh, U.S. ethanol exports. Mexico appeared as if it was going to come on board to become an important export destination because they were looking at going to E10 nationwide. 
And then, of course, places like India, where a lot of the exports are for industrial purposes, but every bit helps. And then China, the real game changer, you know, they had a very ambitious plan in China to go to E10 nationwide by 2020. They didn't get that done for a variety of reasons, and they are likely going to scale that plan back. But that would have meant billions and billions of gallons, probably three to four billion gallon market potential in China. There's still market potential in a country like China. There's absolutely export potential in Brazil if we can get some sanity restored to our um, trade relationship with them between now and December 11th, the time given between the two presidents of our countries to try to work out a deal on ethanol and sugar trade. But we need export markets, plain and simple. We produce significantly more ethanol in the United States than we can use. And most of the constraints on our ability to use ethanol in the U.S. are political, but we've got to work through those. And meanwhile, we have relied upon these these export destinations uh, to pick up the slack. And so when these markets go away because of a trade war or a tariff rate quota, it really hurts our prosperity chances. And so we've got to continue to work with elected leaders to, to get those markets back on track. Well, Brian Jennings, we want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to spend with us on this edition of Open Mic. Brian, it is Open Mic, and you get the last word today. Well, I just uh, appreciate the opportunity. This industry, I'm really proud to work for. I'm proud to work for the, the farmers and the ethanol producers that are part of it. This has been an unprecedented year for us, but we, we, as I said, we've picked ourselves up, dusted ourselves off, and we're we're working hard to figure out how we can get back on track. So thanks for the opportunity. Our thanks to Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition of Ethanol, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly. 